Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. Darkcast Network, where the light shines brightest on our indie podcast. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. live at crime con yeah please forgive the audio quality we were in a big huge room with yeah. lots of people there were so many people we could we were like security it was these fans, we can't get these fans <laughs> out of here come on y'all we're just two regular gals uh and there were people walking around and lots of talking and there were also a couple technical issues etc yep. etc yep. but it was glorious yes um, and there is actually a section where it is really echoey so just be forewarned it doesn't last too long anyway that said enjoy the show We had a little uh, mix-up with our music. I was coming out here. I was ready to twerk for our theme song. We, I mean, I, we even choreographed. Beth was going to do her white lady dance. She was going to get all you guys to stand up. And it didn't work out. So forgive us. Uh, ready to get started? Yeah. Okay. Well, welcome, everybody, to Fruit Loops, episode 160. Buiti Binafi and Bienvenidos Bitches. Thank you for being here, and thank you for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> not all serial killers are straight, cisgendered, able-bodied white dudes. What? Aren't I'm telling you? So, uh, and there are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color, and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist. Allegedly. <laughs> Don't tell myself. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. A black Latinx woman, and I'm Beth. And guess what? I happen to be white. It's not her fault. We <laughs> forgive her every day. <laughs> We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. All right. So uh, 
Who are we talking about today, Beth? Well, today we thought it would be fun to talk about somebody from around these parts. Oh, really? Yeah. So today we're going to be talking about Keho, a Native American man from the Las Vegas area of Nevada. Keho has been credited with the deaths of 23 people in the early 20th century. He was declared Nevada's... Nevada. Yeah. You pronounce it Nevada. I I have a hard time saying that. Sorry. Nevada's public enemy number one and the state's first mass murderer. But was he really? We'll find out. In the meantime, (laughs) how you doing? I'm doing good. Um, It's great being here at CrimeCon, meeting all the people, making new friends. It's super fun. Yeah, it's really rad. a great time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so happy to be here. Um, normally at this point in the show, we read our listener letters. Um, we'll play a like cool sound effect, which I don't think I have on here, so I'm not going to do that. Um, and we give personalized shout outs to the people who support our show. Um, and today I'm going to do something a little bit different and thank all of you for being here. Um, thank the Crime Con people for having us and our Patreon supporters and Podbean supporters for helping supporting us financially to get here. So here goes. It's driving me out of my mind. That's why it's hard for me to find. Can't get it out of my head. Killers, victims, murder. Las Vegas crime con. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you all for bearing with me through that. Uh, So uh, now we're going to get back to the story. So tell us who we're talking about again. So uh, first we must must say that uh, today's story... Let me... I lost my place. (laughs) Where am I? Uh, Oh, first we must say that the story of Kehoe is a legend, meaning that the story is often regarded as historical. But much much of it is unauthenticated, and there's a lot of speculation involved. What we do know is that there was a Native American man named Cahoe, and he was an outcast, and he probably did kill at least one person. So also one thing, most people pronounce his name Kehoe, but the Spanish pronunciation, because his name is derived from the word quejar, which means to complain. He was a complainer. So we're going to call him Cahoe. Um, so <laughs> or try to yeah we'll we, try our best we, we might, might flip we might back fuck and it forth. so yeah uh, so now <laughs> it's time for stats <laughs> so listen how many other how many people he killed is up for debate uh, as he was often given credit for almost every unsolved murder committed in southern Nevada during the early part of the 20th century but 23 is what we normally see associated with his name um, so rest in power to all the victims we don't know your names but rest in power nonetheless so now it's time to get into the setting. Take us there, Beth. Well, there's a ton of information about Nevada Nevada, and indigenous people, um, their history, that, we w- that it would be impossible to cover in the time allotted. So uh, we're going to do the best we can. Um, here's a little taste, Fruit Loop style. Nevada is the seventh largest of the 50 states, but is one of the most sparsely populated. It's also the driest state in the nation, and much of, the, much of Nevada is uninhabited desert located within the Great Basin. Areas south of the Great Basin are located within the, the Mojave Desert, while Lake Tahoe and the Sierra Nevada it lies on the western edge. Nevada is also home to the Hoover Dam, one of the largest public works projects in the history of the United States, and Lake Mead, the largest reservoir in the country. So prior to European contact, which is a euphemism for like land stealing, genocide, you know, all that stuff, uh, Native Americans of the Paiute, Shoshone, and Washoe tribes inhabited the land which is now called Nevada. The Southern Paiute people have called Las Vegas area home since long before white settlers ever arrived. The Cocopa have lived along the lower Colorado River and Delta for centuries. But after European contact, which began in the late 1700s, they suffered from violence, disease, and the deliberate attempt to stamp out their culture and customs. 
From the mid-1800s onwards, most of the livable land was claimed by Nevada's early Mormon settlers and the silver miners who flocked to the state at the end of the 19th century. By Kehoe's time, or sorry, Kehoe's time, white settlers had brought an end to the Native Americans' free movement and traditional way of life. As the white population grew, game became scarce, and the Native population was driven to the white settlements, mines and ranches to work. Or, if no opportunities were available, they were forced to beg. On December 30th, 1911, ranch owner Helen J. Stewart deeded 10 acres of her land in downtown Las Vegas to the Paiutes, establishing the Las Vegas Paiute Colony. In 1970, it was recognized as a sovereign nation, and in 1983, an additional 4,000 acres came into Paiute possession at the Snow Mountain Reservation through an act of Congress. Today, Native American tribes who have tribal lands in Nevada are the Southern and Northern Paiute, the Washoe, and the Western Shoshone. In the greater Las Vegas area are the federally recognized bands of Southern Paiute people in Las Vegas and Moapa, as well as a Paiute band in Pahrump. The Cocopa Reservation is in Arizona, and it's 13 miles south of Yuma. In October 2017, after cannabis legalization, the Las Vegas Paiutes opened up the New Woo Cannabis Marketplace. Hell yeah! At nearly nearly 16,000 square feet. New Woo is the largest marijuana dispensary in the world. It's open 24 hours and offers drive through service. And guess what? It's well, right yeah. down the street, Okay, y'all. so everybody go there after this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Las Vegas and Mauapa bands also honor Southern Paiute traditions with annual powwows. Woo! The Snow Mountain Powwow attracts indigenous performers, craftspeople, and spectators from across the U.S. and Canada. To the three, it's a three-day event held annually over Memorial Day weekend at the Snow Mountain Reservation. The next one is coming up on May 28th and 29th, so mark your calendars, uh, and uh, will be the 30th annual powwow. Yeah, and I wasn't sure who could go to a powwow, so I looked, and anybody can go. So go and support. The first Europeans to enter the region were Spaniards. They gave the region the name of Nevada, meaning snow-covered or snow-capped. The state was most likely named after the Sierra Nevada, a snow-capped mountain range which runs runs along the western edge of Nevada at the eastern edge of California. This area was part of New Spain, which then became part of Mexico when the country gained its independence in 1821. The United States acquired the territory in 1848, and it was incorporated into the Utah Territory in 1850. In June of 1859, silver was discovered near what is now Virginia City. Now known as the Comstock Lode, it became the most lucrative silver mine in American history. The vein of silver was so rich that it kicked off a reverse migration from California as prospectors poured into Nevada, leading to a population boom. So now we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about the mining towns in the 19th century. Um, They were thrown up quickly to accommodate the throngs of mostly young, unattached men. Many of these boom towns were approximately 90% male, which to me sounds terrible. Very scary. Uh, (laughs) There was insufficient housing. Hotels and houses made of wood were built hastily and crudely, and the working conditions were very poor. There was some ethnic diversity in these towns. Mexican immigrants were common, as were black men who aspired to the same get-rich-quick ideas as white men. Chinese men were numerous in mining towns until the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. Basura! (laughs) Which significantly decreased the number of Chinese people that were allowed to immigrate to the United States. Native Americans who participated were often taken advantage of Surprise. Um, And uh, mining uh, on and near tribal lands occurred with minimal input from the tribes themselves. And while government agencies and corporations made the decisions about leasing and mining practices, tribal communities bore the impacts to air, water, and sacred sites. Which is fucked up. Yeah. The socioeconomic ladder was clearly defined in these boom towns. Guess what? White people owned and managed all the mines. Oh, my God. God. Get out of here. Some black folks, Mexicans and Chinese Americans, and poor white folks worked in the mine shafts, although many ended up working in the service sector. Native Americans were often treated very harshly, and this was socially acceptable. Native Americans who laid claims often had their claims stolen from them, or they were just killed. 
I have so many words. This, yeah. It makes my blood boil. It makes me so angry. But uh, it is these mining towns that often conjure up images of the wild, wild west. Most mining towns did have a saloon or several saloons, and gambling and drinking were the most common forms of entertainment. But Western movie depictions are typically exaggerated and romanticized. Law enforcement was crude. Many towns could not afford a sheriff, so vigilante justice often prevailed, which sounds terrifying. Yeah. 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 Occasionally, a posse or hunting party would be raised to capture a particularly bothersome outlaw. When my black ass hears posse or hunting party, I instantly get terrified. (laughs) (laughs) On October 31st, 1864, Nevada became the 36th state of the United States. Woo! It was the second of two states added to the Union during the Civil War, the first being West Virginia, and became known as the Battleborn State because of when it achieved statehood. Nevada made history in 1869 as the first state to ratify the 15th Amendment, which gave black men the right to vote. The amendment became part of the U.S. Constitution in 1870 when Iowa became the 28th state to ratify it. Iowa. Should we applaud Iowa? I don't know. I'm not (laughs) sure. I feel weird about it. Although gambling in Nevada was legal between 1865 and 1910, it was banned in October of 1910. But much like the national prohibition on alcohol, the law was largely ignored and gambling simply moved to more discreet locations. In the 1830s, hundreds of people moved to Las Vegas hoping to find work building the Hoover Dam, including large numbers of black families arriving from the South. And on March 19, 1931, gambling was re-legalized. This, along with good transportation, especially to California's metropolitan areas, and the nation's easiest divorce laws, led to another economic boom. Okay, so now we're going to go back back in time to the early 19... Yeah, thank you, thank you. The effect. Uh, at, that, at that time, Las Vegas, Nevada was a small community that provided supplies for nearby mining operations like El Dorado, <laughs> Nelson, and Searchlight. It wasn't much more than a campsite for miners and ranchers until the railroad was completed along an old wagon route between Salt Lake City and Los Angeles in 1905. Nearby was a Native American reservation, and the Native Americans who lived there were granted very little respect from the white people. They were constantly harassed and discriminated against in increasingly offensive ways. now we're going to get into the killer's early life. So we don't know a whole lot about Quejo's early life, uh, and tribal records have no information about him. Uh, He is thought to have been born around 1880 at Cottonwood Island, a large island in the Colorado River near the town of Nelson, Nevada. Uh, It was about 10 miles long and up to three miles wide. I say was because today Cottonwood Island is located under Lake Mojave, um, a a man-made reservoir on the Colorado River between the Hoover Dam and Davis Dam. And just a quick culture corner, um, this town is not the only town like it in the United States. There are many places across this wonderful nation that have been flooded out that were inhabited by African-American people and indigenous people. So just want to point that out. I'll shut up now. His tribal affiliation is uncertain. Keho's mother is said to have belonged to the Cocopop tribe, although some accounts say he was a Paiute. In any case, she died shortly after giving birth. Reportedly, she committed suicide by jumping into the Colorado River. Um, We don't know the veracity of this, but that's the tale. So we also don't know who his father was. Uh, All we do know is that he was... Uh, he was not married to Keho's mother. Some say he was a Mexican miner. Others say he was a Native American man from a neighboring tribe or maybe a white soldier from Fort Mojave. Still others say that he was an unknown stranger who forced himself on his mother. In any case, Keho was known as a... Oh, my God. I'm just saying this because this was in the articles. Was a half-breed. Don't ever say that. Yeah. <laughs> don't ever don't say, say that, that to anybody. Yeah. Keho had some sort of foot or leg deformity. Most likely he was born with a club foot but some accounts speculate that he may have at some point broken his leg or foot, foot, <laughs> foot, which healed unevenly and gave him a limp. 
in either case, because of his physical deformity and his mixed racial background, he was an outcast in his community from the beginning. And he was the target of much abuse and ridicule. Yeah, we talk, we talk about how sometimes being mixed race, some of our killers that we cover are mixed race. And there's this element of not really belonging in either side. Um, and that creates an internal conflict and struggle. So, yeah. Um, Cahill was reportedly raised by his mother's relatives on the reservation. He apparently grew to be much taller than average and had two rows of teeth. Uh, This can happen when a child's adult teeth grow in behind the baby teeth and the baby tooth roots do not resorb or dissolve as usual and just remain there. In modern times, this is corrected by a pediatric dentist who can extract the baby teeth. Once the baby teeth are gone, the adult teeth will slowly shift towards the front. I don't know how it was handled back in Cahill's time and place, but I would imagine that this was just another thing that made him an outcast, and he was probably seen as an aberration. So Cahill worked from an early age as a ranch laborer and wood gatherer in several of the nearby mining camps. He is known to have taken odd jobs around the Eldorado Canyon (laughs) mines, and he also gathered driftwood along the Colorado River, selling it to the miners. It is said that Cahill was introverted and unhappy in youth. Likely, this is how he got the name Cahill, as in Spanish, Cahill roughly translates to complainer. He has been described as sullen, moody, and quick-tempered. But, I mean, can you blame him? (laughs) Not one bit. Uh, So now it's time to hit the timeline. So when Cahill was 17, another Native American man named Albote allegedly went on a rampage and murdered several white folks, reportedly five of them. Some accounts say that Abote was Quejo's half-brother, others say stepbrother, others say cousin, um, yet others make no mention of any relation, so we're not sure. In any case, as a result, the white community was expecting justice. When Native people committed such crimes, other Natives were expected to correct the situation, producing either the culprit or a corpse. The alternative was to face a general campaign of retaliation by the white people, so it was either Avote or the whole tribe. Hey, quick question. Um, is anybody going to produce a culprit or course for the uh, genocide or land stolen? <laughs> Just wondering. <laughs> anyway, we don't know the veracity of this. It kind of feels like bullshit. But it was reported in a lot of articles that at the time when a Native American man committed a capital offense, it was tradition that the offender's brother was to deliver the punishment, which in this case was execution. It's more likely that Cahill was sent because he knew the complex canyons and washes of the lower Colorado better than the white man did. Regardless of the reason, Cahill and another Native American man named Jim White were sent after Avote. Cahill and White found Avote on Cottonwood Island. They let Avote pass them in a wash, then Cahill shot him from behind. Cahill was later quoted as saying, it seemed like the most sensible way to do the job. It is. Can't yeah. disagree. Uh, anyway, rather than try to brag the, drag the body through the swift water and up the canyon, Quejo simply cut off his hand. Avote was missing a finger, so it was a distinguishing characteristic. The two men returned to El Dorado, and at that particular moment, Quejo was a hero. His hero status would soon change, however, when in 1910 he left his home along the banks of the Colorado for the budding town of Las Vegas. It was here, living among the white people, that things took a turn for the even worse. Sounds familiar. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Uh, So in November of 1910, Quejo and a man named Harry Bismarck were drinking when they got into a fight, and Quejo shot and killed Bismarck. In those days, there was such a thing as, quote-unquote, justifiable homicide, uh, but not for Native Americans or indigenous people. Right. Quejo then went on the run, and according to some unconfirmed accounts, he murdered two Paiute men when he stole their horses in his escape. Then, while stocking up on supplies in Las Vegas, he argued with a merchant named Hai Vaughn. Keho ended up beating the man with a pick handle, breaking his arms and fracturing his skull. He then took his supplies and fled. Uh... I was going to ask, his, did he survive? Is he dead? He survived. Okay. Yeah, but I, I think he's probably dead now. He's dead now. Okay, <laughs> got it. So uh, near Searchlight, Keho took a job with J.M. Woodworth, a woodcutter. Legend says that Woodworth refused to pay him after he helped the man cut timber, although others claim that Keho asked for food and was refused. 
in any case, Kejo then allegedly beat Woodworth to death with a piece of timber. Whoops. This would go down in history as the time when the woodcutter, Woodworth, was wooded to death. And worldly woodcutter worth, his wood would not be wooded to death. Anyway, just wanted to have some fun with alliteration. Um, but the perpetrator of the crime was identified as Kejo and through his uh, distinctive footprints. Because remember, he had the footprints. Because foot- of his club foot or... Yeah. Whatever. A posse was formed hastily in Las Vegas, and the chase was on. The posse trailed Cahoe across the Colorado River to the Arizona side. There, an elderly night watchman named Doc Gilbert was found shot in the head at the Goldbug Mine, which, incidentally, was partially owned by Frank Rockefeller, brother of John D. Rockefeller. All I think is Beyonce is Jay-Z. ROC The Rock. (laughs) Um, Anyway, Doc Gilbert Food and his special deputy badge, number 896, were missing. And again, from the distinct footprints at the scene of the crime, it was deduced that the murder had been the doing of Quejo. Quejo was then tracked to the El El Dorado Canyon near the Colorado River. But with endless bluffs and crevices to hide in, Quejo eluded capture. Nevada, Nevada, <laughs> Nevada <you>. State. I know. <laughs> Nevada State Police Sergeant Newgard was called in to continue the search. Newgard went to El Dorado Canyon with several quote-unquote Indian trackers. And- um, so for days at a time, they would find no sign, but then they would uncover the characteristic clubfoot track, and the pursuit would go forward again. But by February of 1911, Newgard's group finally gave up the hunt and returned to Las Vegas, exhausted. By this time, the story of Quejo was growing into a legend, and the story kind of took on a life of its own. In February of 1911, it was reported that Keho had killed a rancher and miner by the name of James Patterson. However, Patterson turned up in Las Vegas in March, very much alive. The headline read, quote, Patterson appears in Las Vegas, denies he is dead, unquote. Oh, Patterson, we thought you were dead. What what happened? Uh, So in March of 1911, uh, it was reported that two men on the Arizona side of the river, just below searchlight, watched helplessly as Quejo beat a white man to death on the opposite side. And over the next eight years, a number of mysterious killings that occurred in the same Colorado River area where Quejo had been hiding out were attributed to him. Then on January 21st, 1919, Maude Douglas, the wife of a miner, was shot to death in the middle of the night in the Douglas's tent cabin near Tchattacup Mine in El Dorado Canyon, while everyone else was sleeping. It was a half-tent building with a bedroom, living room, and kitchen with blanket dividers. Along with her four children, Maude was also caring for two other children whose mother had recently died of the Spanish flu, a four-year-old boy named Leo Kennedy and his sister Bertha. So there was a total of six children in the house at the time, plus Maude and her husband Irving. Some slept in the living room, some slept in the kitchen, as well as the divided room. They were all just getting over the flu. In the middle of the night, a gunshot was heard and Maude was found shot in the chest. The family believes that she heard a sound in the kitchen and got up to investigate, then was shot by Keho, who had broken in to steal food. At least one article reported that Leo told authorities that it was Maude's husband, Irving, he did it, who had killed Maude. But keep in mind that this kid was four years old and it happened to be in the middle of the night. Uh, In any case, authorities claim that Quejo's tracks at the scene uh, were present and they already made up their minds that he did it. Quejo's footprints were said to have been found heading down the canyon towards the Colorado River. Another posse was formed to search the rugged cliffs and canyons along the river. At around the same time, two prospectors from Utah were found in a canyon a few miles west of the Colorado River, shot in the back, their supplies taken. Quejo's familiar tracks were said to have been found at that scene as well. These latest killings set off another manhunt that was to last almost two months. The search was conducted both on horseback and on foot along the rugged canyon areas. The posse found the skeletons of two miners who had disappeared several years before, and though there was no proof whatsoever, uh, (laughs) Keho was blamed for those two more murders. As the search proceeded, the posse found still warm campfires and caves that Keho may have used. But bad weather moved in, making tracking impossible, and the search ended. Then in March of 1919, the state of Nevada posted a $2,000 reward for the capture of Keho. 
Arizona officials believing that some unsolved murders on their side of the river were due to Keho offered $500. Clark County, Nevada added $300, and private individuals were encouraged to contribute to the fund, which soon reached a total of $3,000, which by today's standards is about $50,000. Keho was suspected of at least 23 murders, plus countless thefts and burglaries. Essentially, any crime committed in southern Nevada was blamed on him, despite lack of evidence. Keho had become Nevada's boogeyman. So everything wrong that went went on in Nevada yeah. is is all his fault, which and doesn't make any sense. Mothers would scare their kids. Oh, if you're not, if Keho's you don't go coming. to sleep, if you don't yeah. eat your vegetables, Keho's going to get you. <laughs> uh, so uh, Keho never received a trial for any of the crimes pinned on him, and many then and now are skeptical of his actual guilt. And there were some people who claimed to have had peaceful encounters with Keho. Among them was a miner named Fred Pine who claimed that he saw Keho while he was out prospecting and that he'd share his sandwiches with the man. Another man was named Merle Emery, and he was a Colorado River boatman who op- operated a ferry in El Dorado Canyon for many years. He claimed to have seen Keho many times, and that he had on occasion left food for Keho. He was once quoted as saying, why don't you let that poor Indian rest? I'll wait. <laughs> uh, so in 1930, the Las Vegas uh, when Las Vegas was bustling with people who were hoping to find work building the Hoover Dam, Kejo was already, or I'm sorry, allegedly sighted walking down Fremont Street. By the time the sheriff had been alerted and arrived, Kejo was gone, or had never really been there. We don't really know. In any case, interest in Kejo began again, and the $3,000 bounty still stood. Hunting Kejo became a favorite pastime of some of the men working on the Hoover Dam, which is wild. After work, <laughs> let's go find Kejo. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. 24 hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast killer podcasts and slow burn media production subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows
So now we're going to get into where are they now? In uh, February 1940, prospectors Charlie Kenyon and brothers Art and Ed Schroeder found a mummified corpse in a cave in Black Canyon near Hoover Dam. The possible cause of death was snakebite because one leg was wrapped in a bandage at about the height that was common for snakebite. But natural causes would later be the official cause of death and the man was estimated to be about 60 years old. Because of the desert climate, the corpse was well-preserved. The skull and double rows of teeth, a feature that Quejo was well-known for. The body was surrounded by a variety of objects, including guns, cooking utensils, a bow and arrow, a dynamite, and blasting caps. Also found were Doc Gilbert's special deputy badge number 896 and shotgun shells that matched the fired cases that had been found beside the body of Maude Douglas in 1919. Although when they say matched, I'm not sure what they mean, if they were the same make or if they matched forensically or what. Don't know. Uh, So some of his old pursuers, not wanting to acknowledge that they had been outsmarted for 30 fucking years, (laughs) tried to say that Quejojo had been dead since 1919. But it was estimated that the man had been dead for about six months. Plus, some of the items found in the cave were traced back to materials used for building the Hoover Dam, and some newly minted coins were also found. The corpse was taken to the Palm Funeral Home in Las Vegas. At this point, a dispute broke out as to who owned the remains. Charlie Kenyon demanded that either the reward money be paid to him or the body be turned over to him so that he could sell it to the Las Vegas Elks Lodge for exhibition purposes. A human body? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Uh, So just a little... Welcome to Culture Corner with Wendy and Beth. This is an example of colonial exploitation and racism, the commodification of black and indigenous bodies. And Quejo, the preservation of his body and people trying to make money off of it, is something that's happened before. And I think of Sarah Bartman. Um, I don't know if anybody is familiar with her story, but she was an enslaved black woman who had a huge butt. Like, I mean, (laughs) goals, right? Uh, But uh, she... (laughs) When she died, um, Europeans preserved her body, and she was put on display for like 150 years in France. Um, But anyway, back to this story. Uh, Judge Nelson of Boulder City issued a court order preventing any parties from taking custody on the corpse or the artifacts until a positive identification was made. Judge Nelson eventually ruled that the corpse at the Palm Funeral Home was indeed the Keho for whom rewards had been issued in 1919. But neither Nevada nor Arizona made good on their old reward offers, and eventually the Las Vegas Elks Lodge came into possession of the body. The Elks built a facsimile of the cave and enclosed it in glass, and Keho and some of his possessions were put on display. Over the next few years, the mummy became a carnival attraction at the annual Hell Dorado Days celebration. Shame. Um, but early on January morning in 1962, the Clark County Sheriff's Department received a call reporting that a body had been found in the desert. It was soon realized that the body was not that of a murder victim, but the mummified remains of Quejo. The Elks Lodge claimed that the body had been stolen from them, but it's widely speculated that they'd just gotten tired of the display and not wishing to become involved in the legal complications of body disposal had just dumped them. I'm pretty sure that's not allowed. No, that's not cool. Anyway, uh, send them to jail. Uh, Roland Wiley, a lawyer and former district attorney for Clark County, purchased the remains for $100 and buried them at Cathedral Canyon finally putting Quejo to rest. There in the canyon is a monument slash headstone bearing Quejo's name and the words, Nevada's last renegade Indian. He survived alone. Incidentally, Quejo allegedly also had a brother named Steve Tacope. Steve was said to have lived a peaceful life up until July 27, 1931, when he fatally shot a Japanese man named Fred Haganuma near Searchlight, Nevada. Nevada. (laughs) (laughs) and was sentenced to life in prison. So this murder occurred very near to where Quejo's cave and the remains were located, and it has been alleged that his brother Steve lived close in proximity to Quejo in an effort to help him elude capture. Uh, But was he actually Quejo's brother? We don't really know. We don't know. So now it's the portion of our show where we get into our hot takes, our takeaways, and we talk about what we think made the killer snap um, and our thoughts on the case. So we're going to bring up our writer, Minnie. Um, Give it up for Minnie, everybody. (laughs) Whoops. 
Um, so we're going to let Beth go first. Yeah. And then... Um, well, we'll discuss amongst ourselves. Okay. <laughs> so the articles in the newspapers at the time, not surprisingly, were super racist. They called Cahill's mother the S-word, referred to the man as Crazy Cahill, an insane half-breed, a savage and a redskin. Ooh. In one newspaper article about him, they wrote, quote, a good Indian is a dead Indian, unquote. And the way that they treated his corpse is shameful. 100% agree. Yeah. Hard agree. Then in articles about Steve Tacope, his brother, um, they made him look really dumb. Like, why am I in jail? Um, Like he wouldn't have known. Uh, In actuality, he appealed his case and it went to the Supreme Court. So he did what any other person would do in that situation. But the newspaper articles just made him look really stupid. Um, like, why am I in jail? I guess I'll appeal or yeah, whatever. Super unfair. I'm super dumb. <laughs> it's infuriating. Um, anyway, I think it's obvious that Cahill's shitty childhood, uh, his deformities, and uh, his racial identity um, it contributed to what happened. Yeah, thank uh, you. He was treated as an outcast from the start. He had a lot of things going against him. Um, Like I mentioned, the physical deformity, racial identity, and orphan status, plus the way that white people treated Native Americans. Uh, Of course, he was sullen and angry. Uh, Talk about making a murderer. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't seem like there's any dispute that Cahoe did kill at least one man, the guy that he was drinking with in 1910, Harry Bismarck. Um, after that, a lot of it is just speculation. Uh, maybe he killed other people. Maybe he was just a scapegoat. But in any case, uh, this story is often presented as an exciting Old West tale. Um, but I think it's just a sad story. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And Keho stayed hidden and lived alone for at least 30 years. Maybe he had some help. Maybe he didn't. But in any case, it's a pretty incredible feat. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, right on. I um, agree with almost everything that you said. Um, the things that came to my mind when looking into this case and talking about it were um, the racism, obviously, um, but ableism. Um, sometimes, so Keiko was blamed for basically every bad thing that happened in the entire state, right? Um, and I have found that it's easier to blame people of color or um, people with disabilities, or anybody who's different. Anybody who's for a little different. bad things yeah. that might happen. Um, and I, I think maybe he killed some people. Maybe he killed nobody. I'm not sure. But either way, it seemed like it was easier to blame it all on him, no matter what. So that's my take. What do you got? Yeah. Uh, can you hear me? Oh, it works. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I, I'm just thinking of you know what made him snap. Like what didn't make him snap? I mean, he had the the cards stacked against him from the start. Um, but when you guys were talking, it just kind of popped into my head. I'm thinking about, you know, he was quite isolated. Like, even when he was with people, he was very isolated. He right. didn't feel like he belonged um, anywhere, mm-hmm. really. And then, I mean, obviously, he did, he did commit a murder, uh, which, again, murder, don't do it. <laughs> don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> right? Um, so what made him snap in that particular case, uh, I, I'm thinking, you know, drunken bender. That was the first... Uh, thing that that I mean he he did do that one right yeah okay so Fine. you know you, Fine, you get drunk your impulse control goes down whatever um, but after that he was on the run and he put himself in essentially you know what what we do with violent offenders now or have done in the recent past is uh, solitary confinement and we kind of have an understanding now of what that does to human beings when they're completely separated from any sort of community, any feeling of community, any feeling of humanity. And he may have become paranoid. He may have become disassociated with connections with other human beings. Right. And so maybe it's possible that any human that he might have encountered, uh, he would have seen as a threat. You know? So, I mean, maybe he did uh, commit other murders. We don't really know. But I think that certainly played into it, his feelings of isolation. The fact that he was found in a cave alone at the end is yeah. just sad. Yeah. Really so. sad. Um, yeah. I'm just going to say this. That's motherfucking bars. Thank you, Minnie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we got 10 minutes. Okay, so what do you want to do? How not to get murdered real quick? Sure. Okay, so uh, one thing we do on our show is nobody wants to get murdered, right? So um, we like to give everybody a tip, but it starts off with a jingle. So here it goes. 
if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. <laughs> That's my favorite song. <laughs> you go ahead. Me? Yeah. Oh, okay. So here's the tip. Um, we got a fire ass tip actually from one of our listeners before we arrived here, Zuska. And, you know, we're all out here at CrimeCon living our best lives, you know, in the city of sin. Um, and we're like, oh, I can't wait to post all these pictures, like, as soon as I get back to my hotel room, right? Um, but today's tip is don't. <laughs> wait until you get back home because predators are online they're watching social media y'all so they're like who's got the best drip i'm gonna follow them around you know what i mean um how can i catch them slipping um and take whatever they got um and then you know you, you they can look at your house look and see oh that house looks nice over there let's see who owns it oh they're at CrabCon. they're not even <laughs> home uh so save your posts for later that's our tip okay um all right. Yes. Now it's Q&A time. So does anybody have any questions or want to engage in the conversation? Say hi. Anybody? Anybody? All right. Okay. Hi. First hi. of all, you're hi. awesome. Thank you very much. For oh, thank fantastic you. Fantastic show and all the effort you put into your research. On that note, and when you're talking about cases that are, you know, historically hard to research, yeah. I'm curious, what kind of resources do you look for to help you distinguish fact from fiction, decide what to include, what to exclude, what to include with caveats and context? Right. What helps the most is looking at a variety of sources. So, you know, you find an article on Google and, and you go, oh, well, that sounds really interesting. And then you start looking at newspaper articles from the same era and one person's telling a very different story. And so you, you kind of just go back and back and back and back. Try to go back as far as you can to the original source. If you cannot verify, then the responsible thing to do is to say that. You know, I, I tried, we tried our best and we found this uh, and we found that and tell those two different things essentially and let, uh, let, let it be known that there could be multiple uh, things that are, that are true for this and we couldn't verify. But a lot, uh, a lot of the time you can. You can actually go back to the original source and, and verify it. So, Great Anybody question. Else? Thank you. Any other questions? We have nine, ten minutes. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Hi. So to say, you guys are awesome. Thank, oh, thank you. you. So on a case like this, where there it is so hard and so many stories are possibly true and not true, how long do you typically spend researching something like this to put about fifty minutes together for a podcast? Oh, oh. my god. Yeah. So probably about fifteen hours. Yeah. That's a, a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. And in it's the a beginning, lot. we've been doing this for four years. In the beginning, it was mostly Beth. I, I contribute a little bit to the research. I'm not gonna. I'm not, I'm not just like showing up in here and talking. But it's <laughs> a lot of work. Um, and we were so grateful that many came forward and was like, I can help. We've also had other listeners um, who've really like liked the show and wanted to help who've contributed to some of our episodes also. Like, yeah. We can't support it got to be now. really burdensome for me to do the podcast and the editing and the research and the scripts. I pretty much wasn't doing anything else. <laughs> yeah, so we're, we're really grateful. And um, But this is a labor of love. It takes a lot of yeah. work in general. Yeah. We have regular, regular jobs, but uh, that's yeah. not our passion. <laughs> this is our passion. My boss yeah. doesn't know I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> She does now. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? Over there. Hey. Hi. You guys were great. Um, thank thank you. you. Thank you for telling me about the dispensary. I will stop there on my way. Yeah, to definitely. Home. Check yeah. it out. <laughs> definitely. Um, and then second, I really, really appreciate you guys talking about um, like the commodification of black people's bodies. It's yeah. really important. And I've really been thinking a lot recently about just how we have been thinking about like freak shows and stuff just about circuses and there's just so many instances of it and a lot of it just isn't even recognized and yeah. it still yeah. goes on today it's right. really yeah. sad so yeah. one one thing that's interesting about the research that we do is when like the history and stuff like that it's all white history yeah. Every once in a while, there'll be something about black people or Native Americans or somebody else. But for the most part, it's all white history. So we have to actually go and find 
the other history. Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of, it's shameful. Sometimes yeah. there will be scholarly articles on those things. Um, so, but but it'll be like somebody did a master's thesis on this, and it's not something that you see in the newspaper. It's just not published that way. So you really have to look sometimes. Right. Yeah. And I think what, that's one of the things that makes our shows our show really special is that we have all these different perspectives. So the commodification of um, indigenous people and black people is not something that I saw in any of the sources that I referenced. Um, It was more comical, but I was super offended and disgusted by it. And I thought of that Sarah, Sarah, I can't remember her name, but it, 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 it it happens. And so I think my perspective, um, I don't know if we would have seen that anywhere else if it hadn't been for, having a BIPOC person on the show. Yeah, I, I've learned so much from you, honestly. Yeah, me too. So much. Thank yeah. you. Okay, yeah. stop being nice to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I hate you. You're terrible. <laughs> Any other questions? We might have a minute left for one last question. One last? Three, oh, four oh, minutes. Oh, we have four minutes. Just we got kidding. four minutes. Anybody else? Any other questions? No. All right, going once, going twice. All right, well, check out some of the other BIPOC pods that are here. Once Upon a Time, Affirmative Murder, uh, Military Murder. Yep, Mama um, Margo, the prosecutors. The prosecutors. Yeah. Stop by their booth, say hello. Say hello. um, In the meantime, Beth, where can the people find us? Well, uh, (laughs) good question. Our website is fruitloopspod.com, and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. We also have merch for sale on our website. That's right. So this is a weekly podcast. New episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. (laughs) It really is. It really is. Hip-hop air horns to you all for being here. Yeah, hip-hop air horns. Oh, my turn it off. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us.